The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. I'm going to read our passage, and this might not immediately strike you as an Easter passage, but um, we're going to look at this together, and then um, we're going to, I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to ask God to help us see the resurrection that he has for us in this passage. So, Luke chapter 9. Uh, starting in verse 28. This is uh, in the life of Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke. This is right before things start getting serious. And he has just told everybody, this is what it means to be my follower. So then, chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, after he had told them what it meant to be a disciple, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying... The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And the men were preparing, for, uh, were parting from him. Peter, and, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and, and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as, the, um, as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's ask for God's help. Father, we look at this passage and it uh, seems a bit of an incredible story. But Lord, we ask that as we see this in light of the cross and on the other side of Christ's resurrection, that you would fill us with faith for what you are doing in Jesus and in our lives through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Easter, I'm not sure how you feel about Easter, but Easter can feel a bit like um, walking into the middle of a conversation that's been going on. You know, people have been talking about something and you kind of walk into the middle of it and you don't exactly know what's going on. Like you've got half the information, but you missed the first part. Like if you were to walk into the middle of somebody's conversation and they're saying, did you hear that Brady got his jersey back? And you're like, well, of course Tom Brady has his jersey. Like, why did he? Why did he get it? Why is it important that he got his jersey back? Well, you didn't know that some sneak thief stole it from him for the last two years after the winning the, or the last few years after winning the, uh, what is that game called? Super Bowl. Right. See, I'm trying with my sports analogies, guys. Um, started with stole the the jersey from the, the Super Bowl, and so you wouldn't have known. Oh, this is really important that he got his jersey back. You would have just thought like, oh, he's Got his jersey back, I guess. You know, he's a sports guy doing his sporting thing. Easter can feel a bit like walking into the middle of a conversation uh, that you don't quite exactly know why it's important, right? We talk about Easter in the sense of like, yay, Jesus died for us. Yay, Jesus rose from the dead. I don't really know why that's important. Like, why? What does it matter? You know, I mean, it's cool that a guy came back from the dead. It's cool that... um, Jesus died on the cross. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why it's important. Uh, 
And it seems a little incredible that somebody would come back from the dead. Like that's a new trick. But I'm not quite sure what it means, right? Uh, there's a bit of a conversation going on uh, in the Bible about what it means. And you're walking in in the middle of that conversation when we're talking about the resurrection of Christ at Easter. And that brings us to our text tonight. This text tonight is all about a conversation that happens between, um, you might call them a bit of like the Avengers of the Bible, right? They're these incredible figures. You got Moses, you got Elijah showing up. Uh, and of course, Peter, right? He's an Avenger of the Bible, sort of. <laughs> Not really, but you have this conversation going on. We're walking in the middle of this conversation and we're trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And I think as we look at this conversation, we're going to begin to see why, why I think God has this passage for us for the resurrection of Christ for Easter this year. And why specifically we're doing it while we're going through the book of Exodus. Right? We've been going through the book of Exodus, um, looking at the gospel according to Moses, starting with the story of how God seeks and saves his people out of the land of darkness and leads them through his saving power to be his own people, to have his word written on their heart that they would be his people and tell the people all around them, the nations around them, all about who he is. And so how does that story about the book of Exodus connect with this passage here? What I want to do before we get kind of digging in, I want to draw your attention. If you have your Bible, you can look at verse 31 with me, and this will kind of be our launching point into this passage. So here we have Moses and Elijah that have showed up, and they are talking to Jesus, right? They have, and these guys have been dead for a very, very long time, so it's a bit incredible that they're showing up. But they show up, they're the MVPs of the Bible, and they're talking with Jesus, and it says in verse 31, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Right, so they are talking with Jesus about his departure. Now, with the, what's helpful to know here is that the word that's used there is actually Exodus. Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus on this mountain to talk about Jesus' exodus. What, how, we've been talking, in the book of Luke... It's been talking about how Jesus has been merciful to people, saving people, feeding people, calling people to be his disciples, and now suddenly uh, the word Exodus is dropped right in the middle of this book, right in the middle as Jesus is making his turn to go towards Jerusalem, towards his cross. So what is the deal with this word being used here to describe the life of Jesus? And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be looking at why is Jesus going on an Exodus, right? Jesus could be doing a lot of things, but why, of all things, Moses and Elijah, they show up and they want to talk to Jesus about his exodus. It's not just his departure, right? It's not just his departing flight. It is his exodus. And when we see that Jesus, when we celebrate Good Friday, when we celebrate resurrection, they're in view of what Luke is talking about when he says the exodus of Christ, when Christ is going on an exodus. So we're going to pick up in this story here. In verse 20, we're going to start looking at it. The first thing we're going to be looking at is Christ's exodus to the cross, right? I've been raising this question, what does it mean for Christ to go towards the cross and to be called his exodus? That's what we're going to start by looking at. So we're going to pick up in verse 28. Let me ask a few questions here, and then we'll look at our passage. Christ's exodus towards the cross. One question you can ask about the Bible um, is the cross a mistake? Is the cross of Christ, was it something that was intended? Was it, uh, was it a bit of a, 
was it something that God planned? Was it a mistake? Right? Because, I mean, um, there's a lot of conversations these days uh, when you look at the news or academics, and it'll be kind of like, well, you know, Jesus really kind of got on the wrong side of the man, right? He was an anarchist of his time, where he was on the politically wrong side of the spectrum. He was challenging uh, the establishment and uh, just kind of like the guys of our day, the Mahatma Gandhis and the JFKs or whoever, when you start pushing on things a little too much, uh, the power brokers come down on you and Jesus just got the wrong side of it and poor Jesus. Right? Is that, is that what happens here with the cross of Christ? As he's going on his exodus towards Jerusalem, he's going towards the cross, was it a bit of a mistake? Um, and I think the way to answer this is to begin to ask, is there, is there a pattern in the Bible? Is there something going on in the story of the Bible that makes sense of God sending his savior, sending his messenger, to then um, make all these promises and then to put his self on the line to fulfill those promises? As we've been looking through the book of Exodus, that's what we've been seeing, right? The book of Exodus is all about God saying, I've promised that I'm going to be good to you. All the darkness and despair and pain and suffering that you experience, I've promised, regardless of how pain and intense, painful and intense, intense they are, I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to lead you out of this place that you have been enslaved to. I'm going to lead you out of this land of darkness. Right? God, God makes these promises to suffering people, and he makes promises in the book of Exodus to people who don't actually like him that much. Right? Book of Exodus, they're kind of like, yeah, we're God's people. That's kind of like our national identity, our little badge. But when God shows up, we're not really a big fan of the way God does things. And what God does is God responds by saying, no, I'm going to put my name on the line. I'm going to be your, your God. I'm going to lead you out. I made promises, and I'm going to fulfill them. My promises are going to come to, come to pass, right? And the way that they're going to come to pass, when, the way God makes his promises, and he says, by my name, I'm going to do it. God says, when I make a promise, I make it happen. So in Exodus chapter 6, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And then he goes on to say, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Right? That's his promise to be good to them. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And then I want you to pay attention as I'm reading this. These I will, these are God's promises. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am in the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. So there's this, there's this picture of God making promises and he's thrown his name on the line, right? God is saying, my honor, my reputation, everything about who I am is being put on the line for love to save you. And when God does it, as we've been looking through the book of Exodus, God doesn't use any help, right? He doesn't get any help in doing it because he is powerful to fulfill his promises. So we come to our passage. Now, about eight days after these things happened, this is back in Luke, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, 
Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Right, so here we have Moses showing up, right? We've been talking about the book of Exodus. Moses is, he's the main guy of the entire Old Testament. Everything that happens in the Old Testament, Moses is kind of the main guy. He's their main dude. And Moses, in the, in the story of Moses, he's a bit of, we saw as we've been looking at the book of Exodus, um, He's not exactly the kind of guy that you would think of as like a moral example, right? Um, he's the prince of a king. Um, he happens to be a murderer as well. Um, he's not exactly like the most courageous guy, right? When you, when you have direct conversations with God, you'd think he'd be pretty courageous. Not a very courageous guy. Uh, but he does lead, he's God's instrument to lead God's people out. And he has this conversation with God at one point in, his, in the later part of his life where he talks to God face to face and his face shines like the sun, it says. So here we have this picture of Jesus standing up at the top of this mountain and his face and clothes are shining. So, so Luke is telling us, Jesus, Jesus is replacing Moses. He's becoming a new Moses, right? He is the leader that God has given them, the servant that God's given them to lead them out into a new reality. Jesus is showing up and he is replacing Moses and he is becoming this focus of our lives, right? He is becoming the focus of God's story. See, in Jesus, what happens when it says that it's be, this is God, Jesus' exodus, it's saying all that backdrop about the whole story of how God saves people, right? Saves a bunch of uh, Jerry Springer show people. It's maybe an old reference for some people. But a bunch of people that are really messed up, need a lot, have a lot of problems, need a lot of counseling and help. All those people, those are the type of people that, come, that God comes to save. And as those people are not so happy with God, God continues to persist in saving them at the cost of his own honor, right? He puts his honor on the line to, to save them, to do miraculous things, to bring them out of their darkness and shame and sin and rebellion, to change them and make them a new people, right? And then he leads them through the Red Sea, and he leads them to be his people in his own land, right? That's all the story that's going on that now Jesus is saying, that's my story. Jesus is the figurehead. He is not to trivialize Jesus, but he becomes the mascot of the story of God's redemption plan, right? We love mascots, right? We, we, that's, the, that's the way we are as Americans, right? You think of uh, the American story, right? You know, pull, your up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? We think of like Walt Disney. I don't know if you know the story of Walt Disney. I, I'm a bit of a junkie on Walt, Walt Disney uh, biography, but Walt Disney, I mean, you know, just kind of this Midwestern dude that liked to draw and deliver papers in the morning, and then he invents Mickey Mouse and changes the world, right? I mean, and now you have Walt Disney World that everybody wants to go to. Uh, he, he is kind of the story, this embodiment, right? We, we mentioned Walt Disney, or maybe if you're uh, in the college age and you're trying to get out of going to college, you say, well, Bill Gates didn't have to go to college, right? He pulled himself up by his bootstraps sort of thing. We look at these, these people that kind of like encapsulate a story that we want to be true about ourselves. What Jesus is saying, right, when it says in verse 31, right, talking about his departure, his exodus, all the redemptive story, all the promises that God has said about himself, I'm a God who, who takes people out of shame and sin and darkness and despair and addictions, and I redeem them at the cost of my own name, the cost of my own suffering. Jesus is saying, that's my story. 
that's my story. It's not a pattern that's unfamiliar, right? It's something that's, that's, that is from the very beginning of the Bible. God is always putting himself on the line to save people, right? This is coming to mind. I'm just going to throw this out there. Remember the story of Noah and the ark, right? Rainbow in the sky, right? Just, just so you know, the whole story, that story ends with the rainbow in the sky. The word that's used there is, is the battle bow, God's battle bow. He puts it in the clouds and he hangs it. And what's the direction that it's hanging? It's hanging up towards God, right? God is always putting himself on the line to save us at the cost of his own skin. And so when Jesus comes in and says, I'm coming to seek and save the lost and my glory, my exodus is to go towards Jerusalem to die, he is, he is taking the grandest story that's ever been told and he's putting it right in his heart looking at you and walking towards the cross. Because a part of the Exodus story, right, part of the Exodus story is that you have these weak and helpless people who can't help themselves, right? They're fickle, right? One day, it's like they're picking the flowers, the petals off a flower. I love God. I love him not. That's our story. Seems a bit like my story too. I love God today because, you know, Everybody likes me, and people like my post on Facebook, and uh, my, my family likes me, and my kids have been obedient, and you know, nobody has run into my car today, or whatever. And then the next day happens, and um, my children have been up 10 times during the night, and I, uh, maybe an argument that Michelle and I have been having, or um, something, somebody says something mean about me, and suddenly I'm not so, I don't really believe that God loves me so much pretty fickle, pretty easily, pretty trivial things. Some of you are going through hard things, and it's difficult to see God's love. But we see here in this story, this grand story of the whole Bible, that God looks to people like you and me, that are fickle, that are helpless, that can't change ourselves. He says, I know, I know. But I'm going to lead you out of darkness into a kingdom of peace, Anyways, and I'm going to do it at the cost of my own skin, at the cost of my own life, at the cost of my son, right? So we see that in the book of Exodus, right? Remember the the Passover lamb that we talked about before? Passover lamb where God is going to bring his judgment upon the entire area of Egypt. Egyptians, Israelites, no different. You and I, we're no different than our neighbors or anybody else. Right, just because you're a Christian does not mean that you are less sinful than the people who aren't Christians. <laughs> just, we'll just get that straight out there, okay? We are all in need of somebody to take our judgment. And what happens in the Book of Exodus is this innocent, spotless lamb who cannot help itself is slaughtered, and at the cost of its life, the judgment of God passes over. In your life. The only way the judgment of God passes right over you is because Jesus embodies this Exodus story and walks towards Jerusalem so that as his veins are split open and his life and his soul poured out, we get to walk through into the presence of God. That is Christ's Exodus to the gospel, to the cross. And as a comment, we need this regularly. We need to be reminded 
of this reality, this story regularly. You know, part of the reason we have these hero stories or these whatever, your Walt Disney or whatever your, you know, your hero stories are, we tell them to kind of say something about ourselves, to say something, we want to be this. When we start reminding ourselves about the gospel, we, Christ, his compassion, his mercy to us, oh, that's our identity, that's our story, that's who we want to, that's, that's who we want to know, that's who we want to be, that's who we want to desire, that's who we want to tell other people about. We need to remind ourselves regularly about our identity story in Christ. So we're going to look at next is our, our exodus in the cross. So we looked at Christ's exodus to the cross. We want to keep telling ourselves this story. Right? It says in the text that they didn't tell anybody about this until later on, and then they started telling everybody about it, right? Because Peter talks about this later on in his, his uh, letters to the church. We want to look at, we've looked at Christ's exodus to the cross, now we want to look at our exodus in the cross. So now we're going to turn to one of our favorite Bible characters to beat up on, Peter. And I'm going to pick up in verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they had become fully awake. I, I just keep thinking of the phrase fully woke. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were preparing, were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we were here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not not knowing what he said, right? And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So, you can imagine, uh, imagine you were at, like July 4th party, you know, like that's, that's when Americans uh, told the British, that they could go back to where they came from, right? It's our National Identity Day. Imagine you were July 4th, and then suddenly uh, Thomas Jefferson just appears out of nowhere, right? One of the great bastions of, I mean, he wrote, what, 30? It made me feel a little bit like I haven't accomplished very much of my life. I think he wrote the Declaration of Independence when he was 30 years old. So he shows up at your July 4th party, right? Here you are. You're celebrating the, our independence as a country with burgers and maybe a few choice beverages, and you are celebrating it, and Thomas Jefferson shows up, and you're like, hey, bro, you want a burger? <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you honor somebody like that at your July 4th party? That's a bit of what's going on here, right? Kind of like a bit of a deflating understatement about who Jesus is and what's going down, right? Peter sees Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, we got Moses and Elijah here. Let's make some tents for everybody to stay. (laughs) It's a bit of not quite getting the point, right? He misses the point a little bit. Because what he's doing with that, right, just to kind of clarify what's going on there, when he's saying uh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, he's trying to put them all on the same level, right? Moses and Elijah, well, these are pretty cool dudes. Let's put Jesus, we'll get a tent, we'll all hang out, we're going to celebrate this Jewish festival, and we're all going to, you, you guys are all great, but you're all equal. He's missing the point, right? We often, just like Peter, we misunderstand Jesus, which is why God the Father shows up. This is the second time in the Gospel of Luke this happens. The, the cloud of God's presence comes, and he says, this is my son. This is my son. He's not the same as these other guys. He is different. 
right? You don't treat him like these other guys. These other guys, right, they're pretty important, wrote some of the Bible, pretty important guys, but he's not the same. This is my son, and he is different, and he is, as it says, my chosen one. This is my son. And so, if we're talking about this exodus of Christ, right, if Christ is the embodiment of this exodus story, if he is the chosen one of God, how does Jesus understand the cross that we just celebrated last night. How does Jesus understand? So I just want to, I want to look at what Jesus has to say. Just one verse. We're going to pull this and we're going to turn back to our passage. But just a few chapters over, Jesus says, Luke 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So Jesus looks ahead to the cross. Right, when we think about baptism, we think of people going underwater, right? Um... Jesus looks ahead to his, bat, to his cross, to his crucifixion, and he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So what's going on with Jesus saying, with Jesus saying on the one hand, I'm the chosen one, and I have a baptism. Right? We don't exactly think of those things going together. This is where the book, of, the book of Exodus helps us, right? As we've been talking about the book of Exodus, remember chapter 15 in the book of Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. Pretty famous story of God parting the waters and people walking across on dry land. And what happens in that story, as we're seeing in the Bible, there's this picture that God's judgment takes on this picture of water in the Bible. Because if you think of it like this, if you were to add up all the things that you have, let's just say this last week, right? We'll just kind of limit it this last week. All the little ways that you have snubbed God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ways, just be honest, the ways in which you have wished that you could maybe say a few choice words and a few choice gestures in traffic to other people as they cut you off. Maybe you did say them. <laughs> Think of all the ways in which you neglected to care for the people around you. Think of all the ways in which you have not done what you should do, right? You have been jealous of other people, envious of other people. You have maybe hated yourself. You've hated other people. So we could go down the line, right? If, you were to, if God were to say, here is my judgment for all those things, it would overwhelm us, Right? It would flood over us like a torrent, and we're talking about just the last week, right? The reason that water takes on this image of judgment in the Bible is because it is constantly churning, constantly rolling over, constantly yearning and desiring and never being satisfied, and if we were to be subjected to God's judgment, it would be a torrent of overflowing, it would just overflow us in every way possible, right? We could not stand, right? So that's why, and so in the Bible, it's called the waters of judgment, the waters of judgment that we should deserve, that we should get, and the picture of Exodus, right? So we're talking about the picture of Exodus. God leads it. He parts the waters of judgment. No, my mercy does not allow judgment to hit you when you're my person, when you, when you belong to Christ, when you are God's person, when you belong to him, his waters of judgment get parted, and you walk through on dry ground. And so when Jesus looks at his cross, he thinks there's a baptism to come, and there's no parting of the waters for Jesus. Jesus will walk through the waters of judgment. Your judgment, the judgment that you and I deserve for all the lust, the anger, the pride, the envy, 
the, the slander, the gossip, all the ways in which we have offended and rejected God, Jesus will walk through that judgment and receive it on our behalf. But that's not the full picture of what Jesus has to say here. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. So we just talked about that. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is Jesus all distressed about, right? So we're here at the mountain. You could say Jesus is on the mountain and he's looking ahead and he's saying, I, I'm distressed until the crucifixion. What Jesus has in mind, his story for you, is that he intends to do things in your life that can only be accomplished when he dies to break you from the power of sin in your life. Jesus yearns to change you into the image of God, to reshape and renew and restore what is broken in us. He intends to heal inside, outside. He intends to make us new. But it will not happen until his cross has been accomplished, until he has absorbed and taken the wrath of God in our place. And then, just like in the story of Exodus, when they walk through judgment, they are free. When you look to Christ and say, that's, that's my Savior, God took all of my punishment and put it on Christ. When you look to Christ in faith, Jesus looks at you and says, I'm accomplishing the renewing of life in you. I am restoring God's image in you. I am changing you to be the way God designed you to be. Somebody who loves their neighbor. Somebody who loves God. Somebody who's pure and chaste and uses their words to bless other people. Somebody who is not angry or wrathful, but somebody who's gracious and gentle. See, Jesus, Jesus looks at you on this side of the cross in the story and says... I have great distress until it's accomplished because I intend to truly save you from yourself. Which is why we uh, typically in the church history, people have had baptisms on Easter. I'd love for us to do that. We, we've had folks come to faith. They aren't around the church in the moment, but we, I, we, they have, we've historically done baptisms on the Lord on Resurrection Day and Easter Sunday because it identifies us with the resurrection of Christ, right? Jesus said, or Paul goes on to say, we, in Romans chapter 6, right? Sorry, it's not on the slides because I'm off the cuff, sorry. Romans chapter 6, right? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism identifies us with Christ's baptism. Christ was baptized with the wrath of God in our place. So that now when we're baptized, it's a picture of something that no longer holds us, right? We are put down into death and we are raised to life as a picture of our life with Christ. We are now in him and we enjoy the life with him. And what the Bible calls that is it calls it union with Christ. We are now in him and everything that's true about him now becomes our story. Right? So we've been talking about Christ's story. He, he takes on the Exodus story, and he is the one who leads his people out of darkness into the kingdom of peace and light. Jesus is the one who takes on this story, and now, in Christ, that's your story. All the promises of God, these promises that are incredible, I'm going to heal you, I'm going to give you strength, I'm going to give you hope, I'm going to be with you in the darkness and despair, 
I'm going to free you from the addictions. I'm going to free you from the hopelessness that you experience. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to, I'm going to do the incredible. One day when your body has been moldering in dust, I will raise it to new life. Those things become true about you in Christ. Those are now your story. They are now yours in Christ. Colossians 1, just as an idea. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, right? So we've looking at all these things that hold us and bind us and, and suppress us and oppress us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everything, I just, as a challenge, in the next week, just pick up any one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Anyone, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, whatever. Pick up one of them. Uh, there's 14, right? Yeah, 14. There's 14 of them. Pick up any one of them. Anytime it says in him, right? There's this little phrase, in him. Anytime it says in him, that is a promise of from the mouth of God to you about your identity in Jesus. An identity that has been established because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the darkness that we all fear. So when you think about what Christ was identified with, he was identified with all the things in our lives that are nasty and sinful and gross. And now you are identified with all the things about Christ that are true and good and pure. I don't know what those are for you. They're your pharaohs, so to speak. You're the things that would be the darkness of your life. But the important thing about the gospel is not to look at those things, but to look to Christ, pure and good and true. Those are the things that the resurrection of Christ now make as true to you and more true than the skin on your face. They're more true about you than the color of your hair if you have it. They're more true about you than all the things that you've done up to this day. Right? Whatever your story is up to today, or if we sit down and talk about, well, I did this when I was younger. I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Those things actually are, are the story that Jesus took away from you. And he now puts them in his story. And he gives you son or daughter of the living God. With that in mind, we're going to turn now to the end of this passage and we're going to close up with this. So we've been looking at Christ's exodus to the cross, our exodus in the cross, and we're going to look at the great exodus after the cross. So again, I'm just going to read verse 31 and then verse 36, right? This is Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then verse 36, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Right, so to answer our question before, was the cross a mistake? No. Because the cross was the greatest version of this story that God's been telling from the very beginning. Right, that is God's story. But there's two characters in here, right? There's the Moses, we talked about Moses, right? Leads people out, leads God's people out into a new, new world. And Elijah, so what's Elijah doing here? 
I just want to touch on this because I think this kind of gets us to the conclusion of the passage. What's Elijah doing here? Elijah is one of the prophets that comes up later in the Bible, and he talks about all that God's going to do when he restores his people. Right? God is going to fulfill their hopes. So Elijah, you have Moses that represents Jesus as the new order of God, and Elijah to say Jesus is the realized hope of God's people. Jesus is leading them to something, right? They haven't just been led out of, right? This isn't just a, the, the, all, Christianity is not just kind of like getting sin managed and getting it out of you. We're going somewhere, right? Resurrection Sunday is just the beginning. The Sunday, Easter Sunday is just the beginning of what's going to finally happen when Jesus splits the sky and comes back, right? We are going somewhere. It is, we are going where Jesus is, Right? It's not just a cross to get rid of sin. It's a new world to be restored. It is a world where things will be right and pure. There will be no injustice. Peace will reign. All tears will be dried. Right? We're going out and we're going to. We're going towards the new heavens and new earth. Right? The, the, one of the ways that Christianity gets distorted is we kind of talk about like God's going to save my soul and... Um, who cares about the world? No, no. Jesus rose with a physical body to say, creation matters. I'm restoring and I'm making new, right? All the things that fall apart and break and the, and the cancer and the surgeries and the diagnoses that don't happen, all that stuff, Jesus is restoring and making new. He will come back and he will restore and make new. He will realize the hopes of all of our hearts. He will come back and make things new. It is a great reversal in the resurrection of Christ. It is called, the Bible calls it the first fruits, right? There's a harvest to come, right? We're just here in spring. Things are starting to get pollinated. We're starting to get the Lord give us more apples this year. You know, there's a couple years ago where the apple harvest didn't do so well. The first harvest of that. The resurrection of Christ is the first harvest of what is definitely going to come. Where the great reversal will happen. And a part of that story, just to drop into Exodus, and then we'll close with this. As God led his people out of Egypt, right, it wasn't, we could look at that and think, ah, that was a bit of a political mover, maneuver, right? Like all the people who um, had a certain last name or a certain ethnicity were the ones that God led out. No, no. In Exodus 12, right as they're walking out, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So there's all the Israelites by ethnicity. And then it says, a mixed multitude went up with them, which would only mean that there were both Israelites, ethnic Israelites and ethnic Egyptians that were now a part of the people of God, walking out to become God's people, that were saved from judgment. And in Christ, we have this global exodus that God is now doing. He is calling you and I from the corners of the earth, right? If you ever think that you're like the, like the greatest of the world, just remember, we live in like New Hampshire, right? <laughs> or some of you are from Massachusetts. We're not exactly like the center of the universe. Uh, we're, we're maybe a bit more kind of like the far distant corners from when the Bible was written, they would have thought, like, New Hampshire? You mean where, like, hobbits live? Right, no, no. God is saving people from all over 
to be a part of his great exodus, to lead us into his presence as a part of this great reversal, the curse that has broken everything in us, the sin that has tainted, the shame that keeps us hidden, the darkness that binds us. God is leading us out of it. In the cross of Christ, he is leading us into a new, restored, pure, better world. And it's not just for you. It's not just for me. It's for the people around us. It's for the world around us, for our neighbors, for the people we work with, the people we see. This Easter, what we celebrate is not just a story about Jesus, right? It's not just something on the movie screen. It's something that's true about us. It's something that in him is now our story. And that we live it. This, this story, and I, I hope that you feel this, this story gives us power, it strengthens us, it bolsters us, it gives us life. And the Easter story is that's what it is. It's an invitation to live in the death of Christ. To live in his death on our behalf. His, this death that accomplished so much. I mean, the death of this one man accomplished so many incredible things that the world is now revolving around him. And we are invited, because of the power of his death, to find our life and to live in his death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of the cross and what Christ has accomplished for us. I pray that as we continue to worship you, that we would experience the power of Jesus risen from the dead. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.